Coming up on episode 144 of Appetite for Distortion, we will be speaking with Peter Napoliello. He is the former senior vice president of promotions at Geffen and worked with Guns N' Roses on Appetite for Destruction, helping it become the massive success as we know it today. He also worked with a lot of other great artists, including Whitesnake, Prince. Stick around. Welcome to the podcast. And welcome to the podcast, Appetite for Distortion, episode 144. My name is Brando. Thanks for hanging out on this podcast night train, getting in the podcast ring. Okay, that's that's one too many. Uh, whether it be through the iHeartRadio app, Spreaker, uh, AlternativeNation.net, Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, however you're listening, thank you. Right, without you, I couldn't do 144 episodes. And without you, I couldn't uh, get today's guest. I can't wait to speak officially on the record with uh, Promotions Guru and radio host uh, Peter Napoliello. And Peter is, you know, it's great because I feel like I know you a little bit now because we've had some off-air conversations. And when you messaged me and it said that you lived in Estonia, uh, the first thing that, that came into my mind, I don't know how uh, savvy you are with your with your Pauly Shore movies. Guns and Roses. See, I have sound bites too, Peter. I thought of Encino, man. I didn't. I don't know anyone from Estonia, but then I got to learn, and people will learn that, especially when you start talking, that you are a New Yorker, like me. I'm a New Yorker, baby. That's <laughs> right. but, but I did spend a good part of my adult life in Los Angeles, California. Yes, and we're going to get to that specifically when you were senior VP of promotions at Geffen, and what was it from '86 to '94? Am I remembering your resume cor- uh, correctly? Yeah, that's correct. All right. Back in the late late 80s, early 90s. Nice. So you've, uh, of course, for our purposes, uh, that we're going to talk about, because you were there at the, the beginning, making the building blocks for, for Guns N' Roses to be launched into the world at Geffen. But you've worked a lot in uh, different uh, different companies, doing promotions, working with so many other amazing artists. I mean, you can't, you wouldn't think that you can get bigger than Guns N' Roses, but you've worked with Prince, Cher, The Stones, I mean, Sting. You've worked with so many major acts. And uh, and now, because I wanted your, your character in yourself, living in Estonia, you ha- also have a radio show on Radio 2. And the fact that that's your first radio show ever is, is amazing. So you are having the second life now. I guess, well, first of all, just welcome to the show. I really appreciate you taking some time today. Well, good to meet you too, Brandon, and I appreciate you. So I want to know just a little bit about you first. When you were, like, how did you get into, I guess, promotions? Because that's something that I ask when musicians come on. You know, when did you first pick up the guitar? Were you uh, 
you know, when you were a little kid in, in, in lunch, were you promoting, uh, you know, Taco Tuesday? Like, how did you start like getting into the music business? And, you know, where did your path start, I guess? is it, Where's a good place to start for us? Well, obviously, growing up in New York, um, radio, uh, first and foremost, when you're a young kid, an adolescent and a teenager, and you're exposed to the New York radio scene and back with me, it was the AM stations, WABC 77 and WMCA. I mean, you heard... Um, a cornucopia of music, everything from Bob Dylan to the Supremes to the Stones, the Beatles, British Invasion. And it just affected you and it just pulled you in. So I knew very early on that not only was I in touch with music, but somehow, some way, I wanted to be involved with music. I tried my my way at playing guitar, but <laughs> for some reason, I just couldn't connect the dots. Uh, I still try. I'm a frustrated guitarist. Okay. I'm a major guitar fan. And I actually found my way um, into being a disc jockey in New York in nightclubs when I was in the university oh. uh, to make some money and to fill my time. And I got pretty good at it. And I worked at a lot of big New York nightclub area, uh, nightclubs in the New York metropolitan area. And in that world, you get to meet record company promoters. Sure. Okay. We used to bring test pressings into the DJ booth and ask you to test the record, so on and so forth. And eventually I found my way into the hallways of the record company. And when you're walking down those hallways and you see posters on the wall and you get to wear T-shirt and jeans to work and <laughs> it's not as formal as the nine to five cookie cutter job, yeah. I said, I said, this is me. <laughs> and uh, I made it my mission and my quest to go for it. But I have to tell you, um, there was no nepotism. In other words, I didn't have any family members that could make a phone call and say, hey, give my kid a job. So I started literally at the bottom uh, for no money, and I was willing to do anything just to get my foot in the door, which I did. And from there, it was just perseverance, hard work, and diligence that, uh, that took me, and it was a great ride. I love that because I, I feel like I, I'm kind of talking to the older version of myself because I really didn't have any help. Uh, you know, maybe I I met people in in college in my my journalism and radio classes, and and that's still not a guarantee of anything. It's it's all about networking, which is of course working in a nightclub is just perfect for for networking and perhaps some other activities. But when did you, I guess, maybe get your first? Like work with your first artist that said, like, wow, I, I can do this or this is this is the path for me. I, I knew, you said you knew it was the path for you as soon as you can wear a T-shirt and jeans and being in radio. I get that. But what was the oh, first yeah. artist that blew you away that like, wow, I'm working with them? Well, here's the roadmap, pretty much. You kind of feel it in your bones, what you want to do in life. But sadly, enough people, or a lot of people, don't follow that dream. And I really encourage anybody that might be listening, follow your heart, man. Do what you love, because uh, I'm nothing special. And just because I had success in the music business doesn't make me some kind of genius or special talent. Uh, I'm just like everybody else, and I'm living testimony that if you work hard, if you stay in the game, you literally can achieve anything. It's a matter of perseverance and being honest with yourself and literally just working your ass off. And it all comes home. It really does. So there's no special gift. There's no special talent. And which is really important, Brandon, is the job does not define 
who you are. It's just a job and that's it. And I think more people really should follow their dreams and persevere. There's too many people that sit back and go, oh, gee, I don't know if I can do that. You can do it. Just go for it. So the first artist that I really connected with, I went to work in New Jersey in South Plainfield at a distributor slash label called Gem Records. Now, Gem Records existed at the time when in America we were allowed to bring imports into the country. Okay. So this this place had a gigantic warehouse, okay? And the owner, one of the owners, a guy named Marty Scott, would import all these great records from all over the world, and a good portion of them would come from the UK. So I would be in this office, and I'd be getting phone calls from A&R guys at major record companies. What's good? In other words, I was the litmus test, and I'd say, well, we just got this thing in by this band from Finland called Hanoi Rocks, Mm -hmm. or we got this band called Big Country, and I was the king of imports, so I started to get a lot of contacts, and not only that, I started to discover a lot of bands myself. It was like an A&R spawning ground. It was a place to go mine for new talent. Then there was legislation p- passed in America where we were not allowed to bring imports anymore, and that all got shut off, and uh, you had to have your pe- your parent record company, let's say the UK affiliate, would have to license it through the, uh, the home office in the States, and you know we'd work it that way. But back at GEM, um, it also served as a small label, a small imprint for uh, up-and-coming bands and some unknown bands, etc. And a manager walked through the door one day named Eric Gardner, and he was a great guy who also managed Bill Wyman of the Stones as a solo artist. And he was representing um, Todd Rundgren. Okay. And Rundgren, Rundgren had a record called Crybaby, Uh, that he wanted to put out through our Passport label. And this record was just a bonafide smash. This was a one-listen, oh my God, radio-friendly record. Now, you get me, a young guy, sitting in an office in New Jersey, working a record literally all by itself. But this record went. In other words, radio heard it, they put it on, it got instant reaction, it started to fly at the stations. I start to look like a genius. Hmm. Who's this kid buried in this office getting this record played everywhere? And one day I got a phone call from the powers at Chrysalis Records in New York asking me to come in for an interview uh, about the possibility of working in the rock promotion department. So I went and uh, I ended up taking the job. And uh, the next thing I know, I'm working Billy Idol, Huey Lewis in the News, Ultravox, Pat Benatar, uh, Blondie, and all the artists that were on Chrysalis at the time. And I had a blast, you know, and next thing you know, you're in radio world and you're calling radio stations from all over the country. And it's all about presentation. You know what I mean? You have to be honest with radio guys. You can't feed them stiff records because uh, you kind of lose credibility there. But we had great records and Billy Idol was a big record for us. And that certainly uh, got my name going out there. And we had chart success and big sales. And one thing led to another, and I eventually found my way out to the West Coast working for Geffen. I love how the the catalyst of it all was uh, Todd Rundgren. Uh, for that's that's that you still remember that, of course, uh, all these years later. I, I play that record on my radio show. It's a great record. It's called Cry Baby. If anybody's interested, do you? Because obviously, you, you you said that you don't want to sell 
stale records, as you put it, to stations. But what would happen when you would get those from from artists? Like, what would you be well, your strategy? Because you are such an honest guy. Well, that is really a good question. Um, I guess if I could take a little of your time. Uh, sure. Back in the day, back in the day, there were guys that were running record companies that were chomping on cigars and big pot bellies. And, you know, they could be in the schmata business selling clubs. <laughs> but they're, they're in the music business and they're selling records. And they don't know what a record is and they don't know what's good or what's bad. But they said, yeah, OK, let's put it out. And they put it out and the thing eventually becomes a hit and it sells a couple million records. What I'm trying to say is they were risk takers. They didn't know. So I always took the philosophy that you can't always go on your own personal taste and your own personal opinion. So if I think a record is a hit or not, at times might be irrelevant. I believe in letting the audience be the judge. Okay. So I used to I used to collect all the data. I used to put all the information necessary. I used to make my pitch to the radio stations. Sometimes I said, let your ears be the judge. But overall, I used to work and start from the bottom. And if they didn't hear it, I used to ask for some test spins, maybe some overnight spins, see what kind of audience reaction you got. And believe me, I was proven wrong a lot of times. A lot of records that I might not have been so confident in ended up becoming really, really good records. So that was the approach for me. I never really relied on my own personal taste all the time. Sometimes it's an obvious record. You just love it. You walk through the door full of fire and you just give the best pitch in the world and you get success. But sometimes that you're a little not sure. But the important thing is that's an artist's livelihood. That's their thumbprint. That's their DNA. That's their art. You owe it to them to give them their best shot to make that record to go what they go through in the studio to write those songs is no easy task. And once the record is made, that's when the job really starts. Okay. Promotion, promotion, promotion. Okay. So right on. So I want to give credit to, I got some great questions and and I told you uh, before that uh, my listeners were excited to hear from you because you were uh, just the, the timeline that where you were at Geffen, um, I want to give credit. This is from Sonny from Hungary. And uh, just as, as a side note, he plays uh, Slash in a, uh, a cover band over there. Uh, where is he in Budapest? I uh, didn't say where he was in Hungary. Maybe I could find that out. But he, he does. I've been there. I've been there a couple of times. That's a great country, man. That's a really cool spot. Yeah, Budapest, as I'm looking on his yeah. uh, Facebook. So, yes, Budapest. And he runs the uh, Slash Army uh, Hungary uh, Facebook pages as well, which is cool. So with all that said, what did you first think about Guns N' Roses and the album when you first heard it? Well, it was obvious. I mean, um, you know, you can use the cliche, the buzzword, it's a no-brainer. But anybody, and I don't care who you are or what your musical preference is or what your musical taste is, anybody who would hear that record would just go, Wow. It's the kind of record that you hear for the first time, and it just invokes your spirit. It just lifts you. Uh, and those are rare. Those are like Haley's Comet. They're only coming around once in a blue moon. So to me personally, it just mowed me over. And I could speak for most of the people at the company. I mean, we were just wowed by it. So what was your, I guess, your musical taste at the time? You seem like you like everything. 
Because uh, I do. Were you a hard rock guy? What What was your specific taste like that? Uh, I'm just well, curious what your ears I, were at the time. You know, I like music, all types of music, and I think that's kind of like a generalization. But to me, it's all about great songs. You know, music is the one force that hits our heartstrings and governs our emotions. What I mean by that is a song can make you cry. A song could make you want to go in your room and tear the thing apart, rip it apart and break things. A song, you hear it in your car, you turn it up, and next thing you know, you're getting a speeding ticket. So when you come across a force like that that moves you, there's no limitations. It's all about the song and how it hits you on any given day. So for me, I like to say I love the full spectrum of music, everything from Hendrix to Sinatra and in between. Good songs. I'm in the same way, and and I, it caught my ear when you said that to me on the phone, uh, the songs that make you drive fast. To this day, the end of Paradise City, I, I have a problem. I need to oh, – someone in the car usually tells me uh, to slow it down. So that still has, <laughs> has an effect on me all these years later. Um, yeah. What was the strategy? And this is uh, um, this is great because Sonny from uh, Budapest is kind of like my, my silent producer for this episode. Uh, what was the strategy behind the promotion of Appetite, G- given the, the time and all the hair metal bands that were out there? How did you approach this band? Because it wasn't an overnight success. Radio didn't pick it up right away. You couldn't just say, hey, radio, this is a no-brainer. They were shy, right? Well, not only that, I think it's important to uh, stress that not only did we have Guns N' Roses, we also had a White Snake record to work. We had Aerosmith. uh you know, we had other records in the pipeline outside of Guns N' Roses that we had to get on the radio. We couldn't be one-trick ponies. We had a lot of music mm. to work. But uh, the strategy was simple. Go to rock radio and just work it and 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 turn no's into yeses. Um, for us, it was pretty obvious. We just believed we loved this band uh, many of us on the staff, some of our local guys that were out in the field, hadn't met the band personally yet. But us at the home office, we had personal interaction with the band, and we loved the guys. You know, they were just phenomenal. So it was the full package, and they made us just with their likability. They made us want to go out and kill for them even more. Well, at least I did because I really took a strong liking to all those guys, and I felt their angst. I, I knew exactly where they were coming from, and the music just moved me. So, you know, being around them, you feel that energy, and it's addicting, and it just makes you want to go out and kill for them. And literally, that's what I did. And, you know, I could speak for the other guys on the staff, too. They did, too. And, you know, when you're on a conference call and you're giving direction, and at the time I was working for, I think, who the best man and promotion man in the history of music, a guy named Al Corey, um, he was just a great motivator and uh, a great leader and a great champion. So, you know, we were like a force to be reckoned with, you know. It was like a tsunami coming at radio, and we were just relentless, to put it, li- put it lightly. We just did not take no for an answer, and we weren't going to stop until we got it on the radio. And uh, the proof was in the pudding. When it got on the radio, it exploded. And the radio came back to us, and MTV came back and said, you guys can't be hyping this. The phone calls were massive. You couldn't hire enough people and pay them to call. It was just, you know, massive. So it's something that they couldn't deny, something that they had to deal with. And then it just took off like wildfire. 
there's also something else to really, really stress that when this band played, they blew everybody away because live, I don't care who was on the Sunset Strip, what hair bands were out at the time, nobody can touch Guns N' Roses. Nobody. Was there any trepidation from your or Geffen's standpoint because of uh, you know the, the the notoriety of the drugs and, and the drinking and then the the cover art where stores didn't want to pick them up because I believe you know there were other uh, labels that that said no to them right before Geffen or my yes and no there was a bidding war there for a little bit but I think at the end of the day you know our righteousness and our enthusiasm prevailed and they ended up signing with Tom Zutat and Christy, uh, the, what's her name, Teresa Ensenat and us. And, you know, uh, we just believed and, you know, I just can't say enough good things about this band. It was an honor and a pleasure to be a part of this history. And that feeling still resonates and goes right up to this day. You know, uh, like I said, this band's like Haley's Comet. They don't come around too often. Uh, and this is it was just magic. So in terms of trepidation and the little uh, nuances, so to speak, you look at those like speed bumps. There's always going to be haters out there. There's always going to be naysayers out there. There's always going to be jealousy. There's always going to be animosity. You got to keep your chin up, your chest out and you wipe your brow and you just keep pushing forward when you believe in something. And we believed in Guns N' Roses. And you know what? They delivered for us. They gave us credibility because when radio and a lot of TV outlets and people said no, and that record went on the radio, we got credibility. So they delivered on their end as well. What was it like meeting the guys for the, the, for the first time? Because I assume you heard the record before you met them. And did you have a certain... Yeah, I heard some... I heard some of the demos. I was into it. And I remember I was at a, a housewarming party out in Studio City at one of our staff members' house. And Axel was there with Aaron at the time. And he was a great guy right from the beginning. I really liked him a lot. I mean, we had a great conversation. Uh, musically, this guy was really a musicologist. He just knew a lot about music. He had great taste. He was really kind of humble and endearing, personable. And I, I loved him right from the get-go. Um, and then I met Izzy, of course, and Slash. And I remember one time I was working out of the New York office and they were doing the mixing at Media Sound uh, on 57th Street with Thompson and Barbiero. And uh, Slash was sitting in my office and he had like, a broken wrist. He had a cast on his arm and he's trying to rip this cast off. And Izzy was there. And we just always had great conversations. And the same thing with Duff. I mean, these guys were just homespun, really good guys, personable and accessible to us. And um, like I said, we just fell in love with them and it made us want to go out and work that much harder for them. What I guess what were the, some of the biggest uh, challenges at, at the beginning for you? Because you have this this record that would go on to be one of the best of all time selling uh, critically. I don't I don't even think just in the rock world. I think just musically. But it's just still so crazy to me just to think back how hard that you guys had to work to put it out there. The the band was there; they were real, they were organic. The songs were there. So, what was uh, if you can? If there are any specifics, what were some early uh, challenges? Whether it be with with uh, radio or dealing with oh, I don't know. You, you tell me. What were some early obstacles you had to face? Well, I mean, first and foremost, the record didn't sound like anything else out there. 
this record was in a class by its own. It had an original sound. Of course, it was in the rock genre. It was hard. It was guitar-laden. It had axle wailing. It had a banging swing drum sound, pulsating bass. Uh, the element of the song was there. But it didn't sound like a lot of the stuff that was going on rock radio at the time. It wasn't as clear and as obvious to some programmers. And in many respects, you know, programmers are in a position where it's their job to say no. And we've got to turn that no into a yes. Uh, but then we also had the album artwork, which uh, created a few problems for us out there. And there was some resistance. And, um, you know, it was just, look, a lot of records are an uphill battle. Guns N' Roses was definitely an uphill battle, but in the end, uh, we prevailed. What did you think of the, the artwork? Of course, the, the famous or infamous uh, Robert Williams painting? If you overthink these things, you can find negativity in anything. I remember as a kid, Moby Grape came out with an album, and it had Skip Spence and the boys sitting on the front cover, and there's like a washboard, and one of the guys is flipping the bird he's giving the finger there and that created controversy and then there was the old blind faith album or yeah i believe it was blind faith and it had like a caricature of one of the guy's daughters and she was underage obviously and she was topless but it's art you know what i mean so it's we're not trying they weren't trying to push anything negative or pornographic or misogynistic or chauvinistic but like i said you can overthink things and find negativity in anything if you want to, you know what I mean? But, you know, you got to get past the album artwork and you got to get into the record, what's on the vinyl. And uh, that's where I think radio should have really focused. And that's where they ended up going. So the rest is history. What was the experience like seeing that Haley's Comet just, it, it just take off? Because you, as you mentioned, you were working with other great artists and at that time, you know, Geffen, um, you also working with, with Whitesnake and, you know, they had success, but their the GNR's kind of success was different. Did that ride, did that meteoric ride feel different to you? Did you Absolutely. Yeah, so Absolutely. tell us about that if you could. The, well look, White Snake of course had the pop element too. Those records crossed over the top forty, you know what I mean? They were big and White Snake was a tremendous success. But when you get an act like Guns N' Roses, that isn't obvious to a lot of people and it sounds different. And then you got a band that isn't of the norm that separates itself from everybody else that's out there, not only in look, but not only in sound, but also in look and also in temperament. It's um, it's more rewarding because it's like Rocky, the movie Rocky. You're the underdog. You got you're swimming upstream. You've almost got people working against you. And then you cross the finish line and you finish the race. And that record is as big as anything else out there and bigger. That's a rush, man. That can't be described. That really can't be put into words. It's surreal. And those feelings, they're not temporary. They last with you for a lifetime. I still feel that rush. I still feel that energy, that enthusiasm, that, uh, that great vibe of working this record, you know, and if I could do it all over again, I wouldn't even think about it. I'd jump right in and I'd go through all the hardship, all the angst, all the struggle and all the rewards without even hesitating. Those, I don't know if you could describe, uh, not just the rise, but those first shows that you went to, what were some of the, the early GNR shows that you got to experience? 
Well, I saw them, all the greats. I saw the Country Club, of course, the Cat House shows, the Ritz in New York, uh, the smaller venues. And, you know, you can't put it into words. Your jaw just drops and you're just in it from top to bottom. And just to see that performance and to hear that sound, it's, you know, certain things you just can't put into words, Brando. But I can tell you, man, it just goes right through you. I'm sure you saw other labels trying to find their Guns N' Roses, right? Did you, I don't know, did you kind of maybe laugh to yourself that, like, there's only one? It's like when the hair metal broke. Everyone's trying to find a different version of of Poison. I mean, it can be said of every era. You know, today, who's the next SoundCloud rapper? Because if one finds success, you got to duplicate it. Is that, do you get, uh, is it competitive? Were you a competitive person and not want, you know, someone to find, you know, your, your, I guess the baby that you found? I can't speak, I can't speak for any, everybody else. I can only speak for myself. And, you know, from, look, I don't let my ego get in the way. You know, I wasn't raised like that. I like to stay humble and I like to think that, you know, there's only one thing that gets you anywhere in life that's belief and hard work. And once you start buying the myth that, or better yet, taking credit for a band's success and, you know, you're responsible for their success, you're not fooling anybody. I mean, you're just fooling yourself. But that being said, you know, you never look a gift horse in the mouth. You got what you have under your arm. You focus on that. And if somebody else is putting out music, good for them. But they're competition. That's the way I look at it. And at radio, there's only so many given slots, so much availability that they have on that radio station. And I wanted it all. You understand? So uh, I wasn't going to let another record get in my way. You know, uh, Electra had Motley Crue and... You know, this label had that band and that band. And before you know it, there's an onslaught of records getting played out there. But uh, Guns N' Roses was always the crown jewel, man. Nobody could touch him. The other bands knew it, too. You know what I mean? They know they knew that they weren't that level. Of course. Sure. Of course. It's like a it's like a boxer thinking that they're Muhammad Ali. You're not. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, obviously, the overall experience has uh, lasted with you, and, and why wouldn't it? Why shouldn't it? But are there any specific memories that you have, whether it be uh, at a show or a meeting that you had, anything uh, specific that's th- that you still hold today that you can recall? Well, you know, look, in every band uh, that's great – in history of music, there's always been volatility and there's always been some negativity and some reckless behavior. I mean, you look at all the greats, Jim Morrison, this guy was all over the place and, you know, his legend lives on. Um, But what I don't like personally and what I think is unfair is the character assassination and the misinterpretation and the outright bullshit that press and people could put out there uh, that's totally unwarranted, totally unfair, and totally untrue. And just like they say, you know, uh, a lie or a rumor makes it around the world a couple of times before the truth can pull up its pants. And that happened a lot with this band. And, you know, that part irks me, that upsets me, that disturbs me, because if this band was that... um, disheveled and this, you know, uh, they wouldn't be where they are today 
and they wouldn't have had the success that they had if half that shit that you hear about them was true. You know, and I stand firm on that. Like I wasn't there all the time at every show, but I could tell you that a lot of the stuff, uh, this band backed the fans more than anything else. You know, and to see Axel stave dive, uh, stage dive and jump on a security guy because he uh, feels the guy's muscling one of the fans, I think that speaks volumes. That's a shot heard around the world. Uh, as far as the other stuff, you know, that makes great rock and roll. You know, I don't like to use the word dangerous. I don't like to use the word reckless. I like to use the word exciting, you know, not boring. Not, you know, this isn't a band that's staring down there looking at their shoes while they're playing. They're playing from the heart and they're putting on a show and it's all for the audience. And that's why they are who they are. And that's why it resonated with millions and millions and millions of fans all around the world. We're not talking just domestic. We're not talking Europe. We're talking everywhere on the planet. So I think uh, it's pretty much speaks for itself. What was out there that, um, cause yeah, the, the jumping on the, uh, the, the guy taking the pictures, um, of course I, I know growing up the way the media spun it, you know, Axel's crazy attacking people, but I've, for me, I've always been able to look at it like, yeah, if somebody, if I was in Axel's position and I see, you know, one of my fans getting hurt, what would I do? What, but what though is out there that you, you know, is total bullshit that, that anything that you can clear up? uh, Yeah, I can't comment on specifics unless I was there. But from what I know of this band and what I know about uh, how the press operates and how, you know, uh, the media operates and critics, there's a lot of haters out there, you know, and you can be God and people are still going to hate you. And I think Axel was misjudged. I think he was misunderstood. But what I love about Axel most, he's true to himself. He's a man of conviction. He draws the line. You cross that line, that dog bites. You understand? You can pet him. He's going to be friendly. But he stands by what he believes in. And not too many artists do that. Not too many people do that. So I respect that immensely. And some people just don't understand that. So they're going to put a spin on it. They're going to paint a picture that is unfair and untrue. But again, anybody that's that that destructive and that's insane and whatever else they classify them as, you're not going to go the distance that he's gone. And you're not going to be in your 50s today singing three and a half hours on stage wailing and moving. I mean, he's not sitting down singing torch songs. He's putting on three and a half hour shows consistently. He's showing up on time. This band is selling tickets everywhere around the world and they're getting ready to go out on another leg of the tour. So, you know, my hat goes off to them. And, you know, when it comes to the haters out there and the the people that spread lies and misnomers, I extend my middle finger to those people (laughs) and say, you know, good luck, you know. (laughs) But there are people that love that controversy and they feed on that. And, you know, it kind of makes the world go round. But truth be told, this band is righteous and this band is honest and true to themselves. And you got to respect that. And not only that, listen to the music. They deliver. They just deliver. What else? What more do you want? You know, you know, it's funny. A, the only time he he sits down is when he broke his foot, <laughs> and he would still put on three hour shows. And it, and you know what, Brando? Mm-hmm. 
Name one guy who had a broken foot who would even go on stage. Well, that Dave Grohl, but... <laughs> well, yeah, well, you know, I, I think you understand what I'm saying. Sure, sure. Yeah. When I was looking at the the Texas show that I'm going to, Austin City Limits, and, mm-hmm. you know, when you're a festival, they of course they have to slot every band when they come on and everything, and I think it had Guns N' Roses for, I think, two and a half hours. And I actually said to my girlfriend, I'm disappointed. I thought they they usually do an hour more than that, or at least a half an hour more than that. So it's going to be uh, – so, yeah, you're right. He, They couldn't be where they are now, even though they – you couldn't do the, the tour that they're doing now with the the intensity that they're doing, traveling all over the world for you – know, it's, it's not an hour set. I've gone been to concerts where they've just played an hour and not be professional. And not professional. only that, Brando, this – this is really mind blowing is I saw them in Helsinki and then I saw them a year later here in Estonia and they did over 80,000 people. And Jeez. I can tell you for that three and a half hours, Axel's not going backstage and taking a powder. He's on stage. He's singing. They're playing. They're moving. There's no breaks. You know, I barely saw sips of water. They're just going and going and going. It's a machine. And uh, it's massive, and it's just like a freight train just coming at you. And, um, wow, you know, that's the only thing I could say. And I've seen them all. I mean, I've seen every band. I've seen Hendrix. I've seen many bands throughout the years. And this band is just like, they just wow me. And I'm not just saying that because uh, I was involved with it. Uh, I just call it for what it is and prove me wrong. You know, anybody can step up and prove me wrong. I'll debate that all day long. Jumping off that, whatever other artists that you've perhaps seen, uh, like a Jimi Hendrix, which is just mind-blowing to me, uh, what other artists that you've worked with could be comparable to – I know no no band can be be the exact comparison, but anything that you can think of that it was like this artist I worked with, or were they just completely different? Well – take it a step further you know the longevity that guns and roses has had uh the tour capability the amount of tickets they sell what they do in merch notoriety everything else you know you got to put them up there with bands like the stones who else is out there and you too i mean who else who else is out there doing these sellout tours consistently and metallica at the level that guns is doing it i mean you know, Axel's been nonstop, you know, with uh, the Chinese democracy prior. I, I, I wasn't even closely involved with that, nor did I see any of those shows. But I knew they were doing big business. And then he comes back with this uh, Slash Duff and reunion tour. And, you know, a lot of people wrote that thing off before it even started. And you know what? They proved everybody wrong. And they still prove everybody wrong because they're getting ready to go out for another leg starting, I think, in another week or two. So, you know, there it is right there. Uh, you just, you got to compare it to historical bands that have been around for 50 years and touring consistently. And the only one I could say is the Rolling Stones. But what about bands that you've worked with? Is there anyone that you've, any other rise that you saw that any sort of, doesn't have to be Haley's Comet, but any other media showers uh, supernovas, anything that you've, any other artists that you've worked with that, you know, you couldn't wait to get them out there, and and as soon as they did, they just they blew up. No, I can't. I can't okay. even 
No, I, I look a lot of the artists that I worked with um, were uh, many of them were pretty much established already, you know, uh, or, or around. They had a track record, so to speak, and we just took them to the next level. But with Guns N' Roses, it was like giving birth to it. You know what I mean? Hmm. They gave birth to the music and we just gave birth to the career. So, you know, no, there has never been anything like that that I can personally say. Like, for instance, when I got to work with Prince, he was already a superstar. He wasn't even Prince. He was known as the artist formerly known as Prince. Um, you know, I got to work with Billy Idol early on, but he had already had success with the track Rebel Yell. And, you know, I jumped in in the middle of that track and, you know, we just pulled three or four more singles off of that Rebel Yell album. So that was on its way. But actually starting from the onset from point a guns and roses all the way would you say and it's no slight to any other artist you've worked with would would you think appetite is the record you're most proud of throughout your career or is it up there how, how where do you rank it because again i encourage people to uh to google you because your resume uh it would be a whole other podcast to talk about all the artists you've worked with um you know, again, me personally, I like all types of music. So, you know, working with Peter Gabriel and getting that Sledgehammer song to be a smash and getting that So album to sell millions of records was a great accomplishment. And I'm very, very proud of that. Um, of course, working the White Snake record. How about the resurrection of Aerosmith? You know, yeah. this is the band that had a great career uh, was dropped from, not dropped, I don't even remember the specifics, but they were no longer on Columbia, and they were, weren't even together, and they reformed, and they put out one record called Done With Mirrors, which was a disaster. It doesn't do anything, and all of a sudden, they dropped Permanent Vacation in our laps, and resurrecting those guys, and look at them today, you know, massive. So, you know, yeah. I'm proud of that, too, you know, to be a part of that. And it's an honor and a pleasure to work with artists like that, because uh, Steven Tyler and Joe Perry and Joey Kramer and Brad Whitford and Tom Hamilton, these are really good guys. They're really nice, sincere people. They don't give you the diva attitude. They don't give you the rock star attitude. They were really, really nice. So, you know, a lot of the artists that I was fortunate enough and blessed enough to work with were good people cool so uh, i like to consider them friends too because they really are uh you know the salt of the earth so to speak i don't get me wrong i've worked with some real pain in the asses that the minute their record went gold the nose went up the air they stopped talking the radio they started alienating people uh and you know i don't want to name bands but believe me they're out there and you know it's good to them so you, you told me off the air, and I, I didn't get the story from you off the air, so I, I want to be surprised. You said you had a good story about the, the artist formerly known as Prince, as, as you knew him at that time. What's your, what's your Prince right. story? Well, we started to work with Prince when I was working for EMI, and uh, Charles Koppelman had done a, a, like a P&D deal with him, a pressing and distribution deal where we were going to handle the marketing and promotion. Um, and he was not allowed to use the name Prince because he was no longer, Warner Brothers had owned the name, so he was using the artist formerly known as Prince. So we would refer to him as the artist. That's what we would call him. Yeah. But, you Wait, know, that's like, why? Uh, Sorry to cut you off. That's why he changed? I thought he changed I, it because he was, you know, special. <laughs> 
I, no, 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 and no. Et I, I believe, I, again, I don't know the exact reason, but I believe it was something contractually with Warren, wow. where he really wanted he wanted to get off the label, and there was some speed bumps there, so he was able to do it with some savvy uh, negotiating and. Uh, Warner's ended up owning the name or something like that, so he had to go by the name. Oh. Of the well, he chose to go by the artist formerly known as Prince. Oh, okay. Not a hundred percent, but you know, I'm I'm pretty confident in that. All right. So we're refer we're referring to him as the artist, and you know, like other artists, you hear that they have a reputation and they might be difficult to work with or sensitive, and you got to be careful around artists, especially an artist of that caliber, because it's a new relationship. We don't want to alienate anybody. We want to show good faith. We want to do the right thing. So a lot of people, when they were around him during the making of the record, et cetera, and the release, were walking around eggshells. They were tiptoeing around him. I like to be real. I like to be honest. And I think many artists appreciate that because when they become successful, Everybody's kissing their ass and everybody's yes men to them. Mm -hmm. Yes, 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 yes. I give my honest opinion. Sometimes you get slapped in the face, but I think deep down inside, they appreciate honesty and an opinion. So I never kind of hold any punches back, but I'm a guitar freak, like I had said earlier. And like I said, I've seen Hendrix. I've seen Jeff Beck number of times. I've been in the room with many artists. I worked on a record called Outrider with Jimmy Page. So Page was around the office and we've had conversations. And believe me, I was in awe. I've seen Eric Clapton. I've been in the room with Eric Clapton. I've seen Johnny Winter and I'm a Johnny Winter freak. <laughs> I've seen all the guitar greats, plus my boy Slash. And he's at the top <laughs> of the heap. When I, we had Prince's record out, and Prince was really cool. He let us do some promotional parties, and he opened up his house, Paisley Park, up in Minneapolis. And I was able to bring a whole bunch of programmers up there, and he played in this club up there that's attached to his house. And we had access to the place, and he was there meeting and greeting. He was doing the right thing, and I really appreciate it. And then we did another showcase in New York at Roseland Ballroom, and we invited all the DJs, all the tastemakers, the press, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And like I said, I've seen all the guitar greats, and I'm watching this guy on stage, and he's doing shit with the guitar that I can't believe. And I'm saying to myself, he can't be doing that. He can't be playing like that. Now, the word genius is thrown out a little bit too easy at times. Agreed. You know, such and such is a great guitarist. He's a great singer. He's a brilliant musician. He's a gifted. But Michelangelo was a genius. <laughs> Stephen Hawking was a, a genius. Mm -hmm. Leonardo da Vinci was a genius. A lot of these musicians are just great talent. Agreed. I got to say, Prince is a genius. <laughs> here's why. At the after party, after the show at Roselands, it was downtown in the club in Soho on Green Street. And he was literally sitting by himself at one end of the room, by himself. And nobody was approaching him. I walk up to him and I said, excuse me, artist. And he looks <laughs> up at me and he, he looks up to me and he gives you that Prince look. You know what I'm talking about. He's got you that got look. look. Kind of raised, he kind of raises one eyebrow. <laughs> and I said, I just have to know, artist. I said, I've seen Hendrix. I've seen Clapton. And I went down the list. I said, what I saw on stage tonight with you doing, I just got to know. Were you running a multi-track backstage? Huh? Now, 
Yeah, I had the balls to ask that. Wow. Any artist that you know that's termination for not only firing you're banned from the music. Yeah, industry. yeah. I had a no. He pauses. He looks at me, and he says, "That's the greatest compliment anybody has ever given me." That was me playing. <laughs> and I said, they are going to set up a shrine and a statue to your likeness in Times Square, and I'm going to worship it every day. <laughs> you are a genius. And that's a true story. That's cool. That's, that's cool. a true story. Well, I had to know. I had to know. I mean, you know, when you're a guitar freak and you've seen them all, and what I saw on stage, not too many people will have the cunyones to ask that question. <laughs> right. And I'm not trying to sound like a wise ass. Well, I was, you're a New Yorker. I get it. No, it was timing. It was right. There weren't a lot of people around. It was just me and him. And you know what? Sincerity and honesty, people appreciate. And he said it. That was the greatest compliment anybody has ever given me. That was me playing. Because did you say it in a way that, like maybe today, you might say to Paul Stanley, you're using backup vocals, right? You are. Like accusatory. Did you say it accusatory or you kind of just said it like, wow, like how did you do, do this? There's there's some sort of uh, illusion going on. And, and you're maybe I'm sure your approach probably uh, made it not seem insulting. Uh, and, th- and thankfully, Brando. you know, he wasn't. Uh... Go ahead. I'm sorry. I think I, I think instinctively he felt my sincerity and he felt my passion because I wasn't being arrogant at all. I wasn't being cracking. I wasn't being a wise ass. I wasn't being sniveling. I was basically saying, my God, you know, it's like a miracle. It's like the second coming. And I said it so naturally and from the heart. That's what I really think he picked up on. Hmm. You know, I couldn't have gone up and like, you know, been snide and say, hey, man. No, I said, man, I got to know. I said, you know, tell me, please. I've seen this guy. I've seen this guy. I've seen what I saw on stage tonight. I just can't believe it. Was that you or were you running a multi-track backstage? (laughs) And I said the pause was there. And believe me, I was shaking there for a minute. But when he came back and told it to me, you know, he gave it up. And it was him playing. Awesome. And then he went on. He went on to give me a guitar, one of those yellow uh, obstacle-shaped guitars. I don't know how you would describe the shape, but the one he plays in Purple Rain. And that guitar is rigged and sounds like nobody else. And he was gracious enough to give me that guitar to do a giveaway at Z100 radio station in New York. Oh, I remember. Yeah, I remember bringing it to the station, and I think. I think the guy that won the contest, you know, wasn't even a guitar player or a fan. I don't know, but somebody's got that. Somebody's got that guitar. And let me tell you something. That, that sounds like a radio guitar. winner. I, I hate her over the years. You know, caller number nine wins tickets to go see, uh, you know, Blue Oyster Cult. Yeah. And they call it. Yeah. It goes call. What did I win? What did I, ah, I can't go. Give it to the next person. So <laughs> imagine yeah. getting that that Prince guitar. Unreal. Yeah. Unreal. It was big. It was big. Any other kind of, uh, throughout the years, you know, whether it be Guns N' Roses or, or not, the, like an experience like that, that maybe you were blown away when you met somebody? And I'm not positive. I don't want to, you know, you said like not mentioning names. Like I don't want to know anything uh, that you were disappointed in meeting somebody. I want to know another Prince story that kind of sticks out to your mind, but with another artist. Uh, well, let me just say this without mentioning names. As a kid, 
you know, when you had a record in your hand and you're in the reading the liner notes on the back of the record and you're looking at the pictures and then you get those fanzines and you're looking at the pictures and, you know, you're reading the press. And back then it was Hollabaloo and Cream magazine. And, you know, you see these great pictures and these artists wear these cool clothes and haircuts and everything else. And then one day you get to meet them. And you realize that they're nothing like those pictures and there's nothing like the image that you that they portrayed in the liner notes. It can be a letdown and it can be like a wide open uh, experience that uh, makes you think twice. Holy cow. These guys are nothing like I envisioned them to be. They're kind of nerdy and kind of dorky or better yet. (laughs) They're they're just like they're just like me and you. Uh, Some of them do live up to that iconic godlike status you know what i mean but there are a couple that uh that definitely like threw me for a loop where i you know took a step back and go whoa 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 you know these were my idols growing up this was the band that shaped my teenage years and now i'm in the room with them having a conversation with a couple of these guys and it's like whoa you know <laughs> uh <laughs> but yeah so it's interesting uh, truth is definitely stranger than fiction sometimes so you know for sure didn't actually it's amazing how life works <laughs> yes and i'm saying that and i'm going to be 36 in a, in a couple of days so you probably laugh at that and all the life i still have to uh, yet to experience uh i guess to, to, to go, jumping off that and to bring it back to the guns and roses I, this is another question from our unofficial producer for this episode, Sonny from Hungary. So making them look like a a second Motley Crue raw version, bad guys, alcoholic, alcoholics, uh, was it a strategy towards press or were they really that wild? Well, with all, all respect to Sonny, we never, ever presented this band or this band did they ever emulate anybody else. Um, they were original. You know, they were the Mona Lisa. They were not to be duplicated, nor did they follow in anybody's paths. You might see some similarity and you might see some influence. And I think every band has that. I mean, Keith Richard was influenced by Chuck Berry and some of the great blues players and so on and so forth. But I, I couldn't say that we ever, ever, ever uh, went that route that uh, we followed anybody. If anything, they followed us. But they, you, you said a lot off the air, and even during this conversation, of how organic and real they were. And that's why, in addition to just the music itself, why people like right. me, and, and especially those who grew up with, with Appetite, you know, I, uh, I was born in 83, so I wasn't listening to Appetite when I was uh, four. It was more of like the Muppet right. Babies. Uh, but they, right. were, they were the real deal. So it's not like you had to portray a certain image for them. They just were, right? And that That's really true. And that's why I say, you know, again, and no disrespect to any other artist out there, but, you know, the music business is a strange place. And to quote Hunter S. Thompson, the music business is a cruel and shallow money trench, a long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs. There's also a negative side. So taking that quote and looking at some artists and the way they release records, there are a lot of bands and there are a lot of acts who kind of look in the mirror and say, all right, we're going to wear our hair like this. and we're going to wear these clothes. It's kind of staged. 
Guns N' Roses was the furthest thing from staged. That was just an original. You know, like I, I like to use the word Haley's Comet. They don't come around that often, you know, and they cannot be duplicated and they cannot be emulated. You know, uh, there is no substitute when it comes to Guns N' Roses. It is what it is and nothing is like it. It's an original. So um, I hope that answers your question. I know. Look, yeah. I'm a true I'm a truth teller. You know what I mean? And. I really believe all these things I tell you. And the reason why I believe all these things, because I witnessed it. I was there. And it's not about me taking bows. It was my job. But I think it's important that the listening audience and the people out there really understand who this band is and not fall prey to the hearsay, the gossip and the the articles that uh, were about selling magazines. And today the websites are just one clickbait. This band is and was as true as they can be to themselves. It's no act. It's who they were born to be. It's destiny. Mm. And that is why it was so massive. And that is why it resonated so strongly with all walks of life. And again, I don't care who you are, young, old, middle-aged, uh, a young teenager today, what your musical preference is, when you hear Guns N' Roses music, you are affected in some way, shape, or form. And usually, it's a positive way. You hear it all. You hear great vocals, great guitars, pounding bass, killer drums, and great songs. And just to put the cherry on top of the cake, a performance bar none. You can't ask for any more than that. You know what I mean? And they still deliver to this very day. So, like I said, hate all you want, naysay all you want, make up fabricated stories all you want. No stopping this band. No, it doesn't seem like it. Not in this lifetime. It seems to no. be no. Uh, forever in and a Brando, lifetime right now. Brando, mm-hmm. that's from the heart. And, and those that tell. know me, those that know me know, uh, you know, I'm not trying to sell this band. I don't have to. I'm just giving it like it is because I think there's a lot of stuff that's been said about them that's unfair and untrue and unwarranted. And uh, that's the sad part about it. I like, you know, I like fair and honesty and I like the real deal. Yeah. That's you know, a, there's an old expression. Is it real or is it Memorex? This is real. Mm. Well, that's why I named this uh, distortion, Appetite for Distortion, because I like being real. I like fighting through all the, the noise and get to just just honesty coming from – there may be different, different variations of stories, but I, I just want here on this podcast, again, all through, the, through this uh, GNR prism, just to have real, honest conversations with real, honest people. And that's what you are, Peter. Well, you know, I, I'm not that familiar with the show, to be honest with you. But um, now I am. Because I listened to some of your interviews, and I think that, you know, you've been subject and you've listened to a lot of stories and a lot of opinions. And look, I respect everybody's opinion. It's freedom of thought. Everybody can think what they want and, you know, can believe what they want. And I'm not negating that, and I'm certainly not trying to shove anything down anybody's throat. I'm speaking for myself, and uh, I'm speaking from the heart, and... um, I'm speaking the truth, so I think that's important, and I hope I can convey that message, uh, you know, because there's a lot of people out there who sadly, you know, maybe had some falling out or, you know, are a little bit butthurt <laughs> and, uh, or agenda-driven, and, you know, 
people react and say and do different things uh, due, due to experience and personal feelings, you know. Uh, I've been burned. I've been, I've had my heartaches. I've had my frustrations with, uh, a lot of bands and, you know, and, uh, I got nothing but good things to say about Guns N' Roses. I really, and, you know, I was in it, you know, and I got a lot of emotional scars and a lot of physical scars from working this record, but, uh, it was well worth every second of it because it gave me a life experience. It made me a better person. Uh, and it made me prove not only to myself, but to a lot of people out there that when you believe in something and you chase it, dreams do become reality. And, and now with your, uh, life experience, with your honesty, your reality is being a, a radio DJ in uh, Estonia. So just, just catch us up on uh, what you're doing right now on, on radio too. And, uh, it, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. People can listen to anything, anywhere, anyhow. So what's, what's your show like? Where could people find it? And, uh, I guess uh, stay in touch with you because I'm, I'm sure people after well, this interview, people want to hear more of you. I'm an open book, first of all. And I'm very accessible, you know, and I, I like helping people. I like giving advice. I don't charge for it. But, um, you know, working with radio for many years throughout my career doing promotion in music, uh, I never really realized how difficult it is to do a radio show and how hard it is and challenging it is and how much pressure it is to be an air personality. You know, some things we take for granted. We think that DJ just sits in a room and throws on records and talks. <laughs> There's a lot of prep behind it. And little did I know um, that they're special people, put it this way. I have a, I've always respected radio, but now I have a newfound respect and I'm in awe of radio because I decided here in Estonia I wanted to do a radio show, and I found my way to Radio 2, which is a commercial-free uh, open format, which means I could play anything, no commercials. So I tap into music where I go back to my old upbringing in New York where the radio formats were you could hear Bob Dylan like a Rolling Stones into Come See About Me by the Supremes, into Jimmy Mack by the Martha and the Vandellas, into the Rolling Stones Satisfaction, into Dominique by the Singing Nuns. Hmm. So what I'm trying to say is it wasn't formatted. It wasn't like an urban station. It wasn't like a rock station. It was just great music, all right? So that's what I'm doing now. Uh, you can hear... Guns N' Roses. Now, what I'm also doing is I'm playing blocks of music, four songs, and I'm mixing them together to give you like an extended blend. And I'm using my old DJ, club DJ mixing techniques to do this. So I could come out of Paradise City right into a Frank Sinatra song and blend it perfectly. So I love the element of surprise. I love never saying never. And I love all things are possible. So I like catching people off, expect the unexpected, so to speak, where people never would imagine that you're going to play one song into this song. It's like oil and water, but I'm making it work. And they're all great songs, and the show is blowing up, and I'm very proud of it. It's called Mindbender, and it's on Radio 2 and here in Estonia. And you can go to their website and find me, and you can hear all my past shows and I try to give less talk and more music, but 
this being a post-Soviet country, a lot of the music I'm playing, these people aren't familiar with and never had the uh, luxury of hearing because it was part of Soviet Union. So I like to tell little stories behind it. Uh, I like to give some insider information. If it's some music that I was working with myself, I might go a little bit deeper. But for me, it's challenging because I'm not only front announcing and back announcing the records that we all know in America and take for granted that these people might have never heard before. Hmm. So, you know, that to me is challenging and refreshing in itself. And it makes me proud to be like, you know, turning people on to great music that we were privileged enough to hear, you know, just by second nature that they were, you know, never even, you know, they used to put it this way. I speak to people here that tell me stories how somebody would smuggle a cassette in to the country and everybody would go into the basement of their grandmother's house and like quietly listen to this thing. And I say, really? Wow. They go, yeah. Oh, it was so great. So it's mind blowing for us because as Westerners and uh, Americans and anybody who's part of the free world, the minute we opened our eyes, we knew something called freedom. People in this neck of the woods, it was occupation up until, you know, the early nineties when the Soviet Union finally collapsed. So uh, it opened up a lot of windows and a lot of doors and, People are very, very thirsty for this information and this music, so uh, I can get creative, and uh, I'm very proud of the radio show, uh, but like anything else, you know, I'm a newbie, and when I took the job, you know, I assumed, okay, I'm going to go into a room, and I'm going to have an engineer work the board for me, and they go, oh, no, you do it. You do it all, and I go, what do you mean? <laughs> you got to work the board. You got to do the music. You got to talk. So I got an education very, very quickly, and I really thank the people that gave me this opportunity because, uh, you know, these kind of things don't happen easy, especially in the United States. Nobody's going to give me a radio show, but I got it here, and I'm getting a great experience. I'm loving it. I'm also turning people on to a lot of music, and I'm having the time of my life, and, you know, I hope to take it to the next level, and it's something that I'm really passionate about, and if somebody had told me six years ago or seven years ago that I'd end up in a post-Soviet country, you know, doing a radio show, sipping Cointreau and smoking cigars, I would say, pass me that joint, whatever you're smoking, some good shit. But it's just supposed <laughs> to show you anything is possible in life, you know, and you just never know. Life is a beautiful thing. Live it because uh, sometimes you expect the least things are possible and they happen and here I am in Estonia, living a great life, loving it here. I do miss America very much. Um, you know, during the summer months, we have a lot of cruise ships that come into here. And when I hear people on the street walking through the old town speaking English with an American accent, I stop. and I go up to them, hey, you're from the States. And it's always a refreshing change to hear people from back home. And, you know, they're kind of shocked to, to hear that you know, an ex-record industry guy is <laughs> living over in this part of the world. Yeah. But it's really cool. It's a great place, and it's uh, located in a really cool place. And I get to travel to some really exotic places like Istanbul. Turkey is a three-hour flight. The Greek islands are a three-hour flight. Two and a half hours, and I'm in London. Two and a half hours, I'm in Rome. An hour, I'm in Helsinki. An hour and 10 minutes, I'm in Stockholm. An hour and 15 minutes, I'm in St. Petersburg, an hour and a half, I'm in Moscow. 
And the flights are relatively inexpensive. So I get to see some really good places. I get to meet some really, really cool people and just expand my horizon. So uh, it's been good. And I'm very grateful and very thankful and I'm very fortunate. Uh, but I do want to stress one thing, Brando. Mm-hmm. Nothing, came, nothing came easy. Nothing was handed to me. I wasn't spoon-fed. I didn't have any more brains than anybody else. It wasn't about being talented. It was about belief. It was about hard work, perseverance, and you know, just not getting off the dance floor, staying on the dance floor, so to speak. Well, it sounds like you're still living the dream. Uh, it's 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 quite amazing, and and still after you know, yes, this this episode recording, and after the phone call uh, conversations we've had privately, I, I just know just a tip of the iceberg of of your story and experiences, and it it just I think just by you being you, uh, you're an influence and in, uh, on other people, and, and just a, a great example of where you can go in life. You know, literally and, and figuratively, you can, you can do anything. You can go anywhere. Uh, you know, GNR has that song. It's so easy. Well, it's not <laughs> for you. It wasn't so easy, but I'm sure it was. It and it has been, and will continue to be worth it for you. So, just well, like anything else, I think it's important that people out there and the listeners, anybody out there, understands that you got to stay true to yourself, and you got to be who you are. And uh, just keep at it, because I was misunderstood and I was my character was assassinated many times. And I've had rumors spread about me, uh, especially when I didn't do anything to other people in the industry, outside of the industry in life. And it's the nature of human beings. It could be a really cool, cold hearted, calculated world out there. Um, And you can't let hearsay and you can't let negativity or you can't let haters get under your skin. Um, you kind of have to look past it and say, I must be doing something right. Uh, because that's usually the case. You're doing something right. And that's when I say stick with it and keep going and, you know, stay in your lane. Mm. And, uh, you know, life isn't easy. You know, the Dalai Lama said it best. If you go through life thinking that life is easy, you'll never be happy. But if you go through life saying life is difficult, you will find happiness because when the good times do come, you appreciate them that much more. And further, taking it further, we learn something new every day through experience. And that will continue until we take our last breath. Uh, we never know it all. And anybody who thinks they have it all figured out, uh, uh, you're fooling yourself. Be positive. Yeah. Be a good person and always help others that are less fortunate than you. There's a great reward that comes back. It's called karma. Hmm. Yeah. Well, Peter, I mean, this has just been utmost uh, pleasure getting to know you a little bit. Uh, if you're ever in the States again, specifically, uh, New York, I would love to, to meet you have in studio have you in studio, but of course you're you're always welcome back uh, on the show. Uh, since you're a radio professional, you can always be my my co-host, and we can do an interview together. I, I have no doubt you have more GNR talking. You you can always come back to do that. But in, in the meantime, this has just uh, been a pleasure. Just your uh, along with just your your great stories, but your your insight and your your outlook on life has been a, a pleasure to uh, to listen to and to and to feel. 
Well, Brando, I'm sure you know after this conversation that I like to talk, and I do <laughs> like to talk. And one thing's for certain, I'm not Jesus Christ, I'm not a prophet, I'm not a philosopher, but I do have a lot of good insight. But more importantly, I like helping people. And uh, I'm a believer, and I'm a great champion, I'm a good motivator, and I want to see people win, and I want to see people succeed. I'm a cheerleader. I'll go as far as wearing the pom-poms, but I'm not putting the skirt on, if you know what I mean. <laughs> that's, uh, that's for Axel, where I said the kilt, right? I guess, to be uh, correct with it. Well, Peter Napoliello, thank you so much for your, your time, and until the next one, thank you so much. You're always welcome, and to all the listeners out there, Guns and Roses rules. And write that down. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. All right, brother. Bye. See, this is the type of interview that I love. You know, these, these unsung heroes that made Appetite for Destruction what it became. Yes, of course, those guys made the music. And, you know, we can go deeper. Wester Keen. We could talk about other people who contributed to the music of that record. But... It, you need help putting it out there. You need help selling it. And he you could tell the love. He he was a fan. He He's a real person that fought for what he believed in and for what Guns N' Roses believed in and still do believe in. Really cool guy. All right, let's do a very quick news. Because it's relevant today as I'm recording this. September 5th, another song has leaked. Uh, Atlas Shrugged, that that name has been around for many, many years. And I'm not talking about the book, the, the Guns N' Roses rumored title of a song. Well, it's uh, it's on the Internet. I don't know how it got there, but I heard it. I listened to it. And I think I, I want to say this about these, these leaks that have come out, Hard School and now Atlas Shrugged, and what may happen in the future, if anything, because I have no knowledge of it. I'm not enjoying the process of listening to these leaks like I did with the Chinese democracy ones that came out. I've said before, at that time, it just felt like I may never hear new material. And you know, I, I was younger at that age, and it I don't know. It didn't feel like it was wrong to be listening uh, to these uh, songs before the album came out. And I've admitted, I, I wish I didn't hear the leaks before Chinese came out because I, I heard half the album or some version of half the album. Now, with Alice, I, I, I just don't know if this would have been on Chinese Democracy. Same thing with Hard School. We don't know what's to come, what he's going to do, he being Axel, with Slash and Duff. And... The songs that are leaking were done with different people, with Brain, with with Bucket, with with Robin Fink. It's it's a different band, and I I don't want to hear it. I feel like I don't want to hear it now unless it's meant to be heard because none of them. I've enjoyed them, the uh, Atlas Shrugs, and and Hard School, but they don't sound finished. And is that something I really want to? Like I, I don't know. Do I feel comfortable listening to an unfinished product? You know, I can get the the, the basic idea of these songs, and like, and I guess for the most part, know if I'm going to like it or not like it. But what would have been the final product? 
I think sometimes it's cool like when you once you hear the final product of a song and box sets come out and you get to hear demo versions or alternate versions. I think that's a different story than hearing, well, what was this? What is this? What was this meant to be? Uh, I know we're all desperate for new music, and I think that's why uh, – yeah, well, of course that's why fans are not only – Taking the leaks and listening to it and, and, and file sharing, whatever, whatever. Uh, however, the the internet uh, connects us all these days. It just feels I don't know. After this one, because it just didn't seem complete, even though I, I dug, I dug it for the most part. It doesn't belong to me. I don't know where it belongs. You, you let me know how you feel. I posted on Facebook and, and Twitter if you've heard Atlas Shrugged and what do you think. So hit me up, facebook.com slash the AFD show or on Twitter at the AFD show. But I will say I feel like there's going to be more leaks because it's just – it's too weird. You know, If you go on any of these forums or discords and all these different titles coming out, there are so many people who know a lot more than I do. Yes, I'm the one with the microphone right now. But I'm not in a position of power, especially with these leaks. Um, I'm, I'm going to listen to them. I may not feel good about it. Do we all do things that we feel good about? <laughs> I guess not. Anyway, that does it for uh, Shotgun News, and that does it for Episode 144 of the AFD Show. Uh, I do want to mention a couple of upcoming guests. Joel Pressman, the president of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, will be on the program. I think I said his last name right. Uh, I will look into it, uh, obviously, before the interview. And also, this is going to be a fun one, I think. Chesney Atkins. That's not It's it's Stephen Chesney, and, and forgive me, it's uh, not Rodney Atkins, the country singer, but Chesney Atkins is the name of their duo. And if you're familiar, it's because, well, A, you're a fan of music, or you mistook them for leaked Guns N' Roses music. Yeah, Chesney Atkins. A lot of their songs have been circulated as leaked Guns N' Roses or unreleased Guns N' Roses material. But that's them. That's their original music. Well, Stephen Chesney has told me some stuff off the air. I'm going to wait for our interview uh, because they're working on an album and it's going to sound like a Guns N' Roses record. That's all I want to say for now. So when you're going to hear these episodes, these interviews, well... The words of Axel Rose concerning Chinese democracy. I don't know if soon is the word, but you'll see it. Thanks to the lame ass security, I'm going home.